0: Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Duets, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape featuring the power of two.
1: Welcome back, Dave. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a fun week. I've been jamming out to our summer playlist on Spotify, so we, we actually did a very good job, I think. Yeah. Oh, honestly. Yeah right i mean, just very vibey i've been really enjoying it uh this week i am I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have i, I know it, just in conversation you told me that yours is slow i i'm
0: guessing slower have, i mean yeah. i have several up tempo three actually the okay. rest are slow
1: okay so yeah yeah i know you went more ballads mine is very nearly entirely upbeat
0: That'll be interesting because I can only find five or six up tempo ones to even choose from. Okay, unless you went way back to like "Hey Hey Paula" and some of those earlier ones. Well, "Hey Paula's
1: a ballad, of course. But that's but, true.
0: That's true. No. But even if, yeah, okay. So good point. <laughs> I had a hard time finding any up tempo. So maybe our our definition of a duet's different. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I'll be really curious.
0: Because for me, a duet is when you take two people that don't normally record together. Exactly. They would put them together, usually for promotional purposes, if they were trying to help the career of one or the other, or just kind of maybe for a movie. In fact, um, I think five of my picks are from movies, so a lot of five. leftover. Wow. <laughs> it seems like duets were really popular for, for movies in the 70s and the 80s, so, um, yeah. But now, I was going to suggest here that we start off with, with our own duet, karaoke. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll lose our Although, list,
1: we'll lose our listeners in, in no time at all. <laughs> but if I'm
0: not mistaken, there was a time back in what was it high oh. school, college? Are
1: you actually going to bring this up?
0: Yeah, we sang a duet <laughs> karaoke, "Summer Nights." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I somehow
1: was relegated to the role of Olivia Newton-John. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Memor- I thought
0: we might reprise our performance, Mem- but I know, let's yeah. not subject the listeners to that.
1: No, let's not subject ourselves to that. I so, Actually, it was fun. I recall doing it. I think we did it on the radio once. Did if, we? If memory serves, yeah. Why
0: would we do that?
1: I, because we were idiots. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I have no other explanation. Um, no, I, I, I am curious if we have a slightly different definition. I, I can tell you my parameters coming in. Uh, like you said, all of mine are by two artists that would not normally be recording together. So immediately Simon and Garfunkel, Sonny and Cher, uh, you know, artists... Indigo Girls. Indigo Girls. Holland Oates, would be another yes. one. Yeah. Any, any duo that would normally be recording, I mean, they were a duo legitimately. I scrapped them, um, you know, from, from my choices. Um, I stayed away from the Tribute albums,
0: um, As did I. As did I.
1: You know, originally I did not, because originally I had four. Um, I had New York State of Mind by Billy Joel and Tony Bennett. I had All Night Long by Lionel Richie and Jimmy Buffett. I had uh, Time After Time by Cindy Lauper and Sarah McLachlan. But I, I was looking at the list, and I'm thinking, there are so many really good ballads. You know, our show, you know, the, the episode really is not about paying tribute and, and reverence you know to to a particular artist um so i i got rid of those and I, I went exclusively just you know songs that were recorded you know on the pretense that it's two artists coming together and, and released with the intent
0: well it's an original song and that's what i, I went with the original songs the tribute albums the duet albums those are all covers covers yeah uh, even if one of the original, uh, you know, if the original artist participates, it's still a cover. So, exactly. yeah, all of mine are, are original. This is the first time you've heard the song.
1: Yeah, I am um, looking. Yeah, I, I don't believe I have any covers. Um, I was real tempted because we've talked about it a few times. I was very tempted to, to do, to include something by Susanna Hoffs and... Um,
0: Matthew Sweet. Matthew
1: Sweet. Yeah. Just because we've we've referenced it on the, on the episode a few times, and I still, I don't think most of our listeners are familiar with the Under the Covers uh, trilogy, but I stayed away from it. Um, yeah, I think all mine are ori- originals. I, I did have, at one point, uh, John Mellencamp and Michelle Endiochello, I can never pronounce her name, Endiochello. I think is how you pronounce it. Um, I had their version of Wild Night. And then I scratched that because, frankly, even though I like it, Van Morrison's original is far superior. Right. So I, I scrapped that. Um, so yeah, I, th- I do believe, like you, all minor originals. Um, but yeah, it, it's I'm really really curious. At the very least, if you're slow, I'm, I'm, I'm fast. We should be complimenting yeah. one another. So. Well,
0: I found it, it was particularly difficult, right? Because we never re- repeat... Recording artists. Exactly. And in this case, we have twice as many recording artists not to repeat. Yeah. And it seems like there are a few artists out there, especially in the 80s, that lent themselves to duets more than others. Yes, they did. And so two or three artists on my list, I had three or four duets to choose from. And that was very difficult.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I don't know. I came in today expecting if we don't have song matches, we're going to have artists.
0: Oh, totally. Matches. We're going to have a lot of so face-offs today. Yeah,
1: I, I believe so. But it's my turn. It's side A. So, you ready to get into this? Let's go. All right. Well, my first track, my first selection for today is by Philip Bailey and, we and have a Phil match.
0: Collins. That was my first song as well. Okay. Yeah, I went with Easy Lover. Have we ever matched on a first song where both of us had it as the first? That's a, that's I a first. I, I don't, I don't believe
1: so. No, I think that is the first. Yeah. Um Easy Lover comes from Philip Bailey's album, Chinese Wall, which was released in 1984. It peaked at number two on the Hot 100. Um, it's a spirited duet by Bailey and Collins. You know, Bailey, I remember in 84, uh, at, the, at the age of 11, uh, I had no idea who Philip Bailey was. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well, I know, I, yeah. I, oh, you, didn't, I, know, know you that, didn't
0: know Earth, Wind, and Fire?
1: Well, I, I knew Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, and you I just didn't know really, he was, okay, yeah. gotcha. I, I, you know, Philip Bailey was just a name I didn't know at the time. And um, I remember I, I, you know, I had purchased all of Phil Collins albums and Easy Lover was not on them. (laughs) I was growing so frustrated because I could not figure out where this song was coming from. And, you know, it never dawned on me that Philip Bailey was an established artist at the time. I didn't know the name and didn't associate him with Earth, Wind & Fire. So it was many years before I actually had a copy of this song i do remember recording it from the radio
0: but i, I had the 45
1: did you yeah. okay yeah I, it was um it was one of my favorites that year i loved this i still love the song Shoot! There's something about their voices because they blend so perfectly. You yes. know, it's oh, yeah. just, it's it's phenomenal. Um, Collins actually produced and played drums on Chinese Wall. And after recording the album, he and bass player Nathan East agreed that the album just didn't have a song with enough commercial appeal to release as a single. So they sat down and they wrote Easy Lover. And it, it's an up-tempo duet that brings you to your feet with this infectious hook um, it doesn't have a deep lyrical content, really, but it's not needed. And and actually, you know, if if you don't remember the song, it is about a captivating woman who cannot be tamed. It's very similar in theme to Maneater by Hall right. and mm-hmm. yeah. really, or even Invisible Touch by Genesis. I mean, all three uh, are similar. I mean, especially Maneater. The, the two women from those songs could be one and the same. Uh, Phil Collins always loved Earth, Wind, and Fire. And in '84, he was asked if he would produce Philip Bailey's solo album. People were really leaning on Bailey racially, warning him, "Don't come back with a white album. You're one of us." And and Bailey, therefore, he asked Nathan East to play on the album as well to try and, you know, appease, um, you know, the the African American community and and you know those artists. The trio hit some rocky ground early on, but they worked everything out. And near the end of the sessions, Bailey realized that the three of them had not written anything together. So to correct the oversight, the three began a, a jam session one night, at first improvised, and they soon found their groove, and Easy Lover was the rousing result. Um, it's just, again, it, it's one of my favorite songs from you know, the early, actually mid-80s, really. It's 84. Um, had to include it on, on this episode, and... Yeah, doesn't surprise me. I, I kind of knew that would be a match. I did not expect it to be your number one. Well, I
0: wanted to start with an up tempo. Yeah, and you mentioned how yeah, you're right. Um, they were a little concerned with Phil Collins producing, right? That it would sound too quote white. Um, what's interesting is it's kind of kind of a blend. It's really you know it has that 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 urban sound, the, the little, that soul sound, but it also has you know again I, I hate. I'm only using the term because you're right. That's what some of the uh, folks in the music industry said to to Philip Bailey. But whatever white music is, I guess the opposite of soul, it's kind of a combination of the two.
1: It really is. In fact, Collins actually said that in an interview with Rolling Stone. uh, He was later asked, you know, where did that song come from? And according to Collins, it was agreed by everybody that the song defied categorization. It wasn't black music. It wasn't white music and Colin said it was an interesting color of beige is, is how he described it so um but no it's it's just it's the perfect track to begin a mixtape i mean it's just it comes in with the with that you know with the, with the very forceful drum beat and it's just
0: yeah in, in a way a lot of rock and roll is is really a, right a combination that's oh, the yeah. definition of rock and roll yeah. this country and western and, and r&b kind of coming together so or, i suppose or, it's all beige but yeah. but some of it sounds more soul and some of it sounds more quote white whatever it, that it, means
1: yeah no it does it's well it's appropriation <laughs> it's yeah what exactly. it is. that's what i'm saying I mean, it, you know I, it really you know little richard would tell you that you know rock and roll ain't nothing but rhythm and blues and that you know they'd been playing that for many many years but you, you can't you can't dismiss the 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 Appalachian the country, right, the country western influence. So, yeah, well. it is. And you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, the song never went to uh, number 1. It went to number 2 on Billboard and it was only Bailey's it was Bailey's only top 40 single. So Correct. he didn't quite take off as a solo artist no, unfortunately. It did not. People didn't want beige music, I guess, in the 80s. <laughs> uh, I won the Grammy though for best performance by a duo. It actually won the MTV Video Award for best overall performance, which if you remember the video was kind of a humorous take at making music videos. Right, yeah. Kind of meta, a little self-aware there. Yeah, I I I picked this because I love the song. I picked it because it's on tempo. I, I really really wanted to put on Separate Lives with Marilyn Martin. That would that, that's probably one of my top three favorite, maybe five favorite duets of all time. Really? Yeah, but I had so many slow ballads that this one I just had to. If I had you know if I had a song or multiple artists for a particular choice, I went with the up-tempo just so I could balance my list. okay. No, gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, you're You don't already, like separate lives? I, I don't
1: dislike it. It's just not, mm. I, I can take it it's or leave it. It's
0: one of my it. favorite songs of
1: the 80s. Yeah, I can take it or leave it. It's, I'm nothing against it. I mean, it's it's a beautiful song. I can slow dance with my wife, but it's, it's not not a song that I would need on the mixtape. Well, you're already going to your alternates list. This is the first time well, this I'll season. Well, go, go, I'll go on my order, but well, uh, yes. Right, yeah, right, right. But right, yeah. I mean, this I believe is the first <laughs> yeah. time this season that you beat me. To, yeah, to well, the alternates you're list. You're
0: so right, I probably hinted to you that I had that, and you moved yours to number one just so you could block me.
1: Now it, it's well, become a game. You, well, you did hint, <laughs> as did I. I mean, I, th-
0: I think we both
1: both probably guessed that the other had it, but no, it was it was always my number one actually. So
0: oh, excellent. Okay. Well, my next one is another artist that lent herself to doing lots of duets. I think it was probably a move, I'm guessing, by the record company when she began to kind of help establish her. However, she didn't really need establishing because she was part of one of the most famous rock bands of the 1970s and 80s later on. But uh, Stevie
1: Nicks. I'm really curious which one you went with because I, I have her here, but I mean, there were three.
0: Yes. And I... Let's let's see. If, three, try, what's the third one? Well, of course, there's the Tom. Hen, Hen, uh, of course, there's Tom Petty. Stop dragging my heart around. I went with Don Henley. Leather, leather and, lace. and lace. What's the
1: third? Whenever I call you friend with Kenny Loggins. Oh, you're right. Yeah, totally. Which, which I almost one. had for a while. That's a good.
0: That, that's an up tempo one. It is. I, I almost had it for a while. I did not choose that one. I, see, I may have actually chosen that one because I was looking for up tempo okay. duets. But no, I went with leather and lace. Um, which was an interesting choice, too, because I, I think we talked about their history a little bit on the female first name episode. Mm-hmm. She talked about Sarah and how it was her unborn child and with, between her and Don Henley. Um, yeah, let's just start at the beginning here. So Stevie Nicks uh, was asked to write a song for, of all people, Waylon Jennings. And his wife. Yes. And the two of them were putting out an album together. And um, I think I don't know if they had the title Leather and Lace. They liked that title. That was the name of the album. And they asked Stevie Nicks to write something. Um, She ended up writing something. And unfortunately, Mr. Jennings and his wife split (laughs) before the album was completed. They still put out the album, but the song I don't even think was ever recorded by them. So Nix kind of held on to it. In fact, when she was working on the song and she had some trouble spots, she invited friend and, and ex-boyfriend Don Henley to help her. So we kind of helped her through the song. And when they completed it, she decided, hey, let's just, I'll do it. And why don't you sing it with me? And he agreed, of course. Now, Stevie Nicks has dated quite a few contemporaries in her yes, time. Yes, she has. Uh, you know, Lindsey Buckingham, of course, um, from, from Fleetwood Mac, Don Henley. Mick Fleetwood from... Cleveland Mac, even Joe Walsh, for yeah. a time. She actually dated when, Joe Walsh.
1: it goes beyond the the recording artist. I mean, she yes. was, She and Jimmy Iovine were were right. a couple for a yep. very long while. I um, we're gonna have an artist face off. Okay. Um, I did not go with Leather and Lace. I went with dragging Stop Dragging My, my Heart. Okay. All right. But it's
0: on side B, so we'll we'll, we'll get talk there about that. next week. So. Yeah, yeah Well, you know, the uh, the song was the first solo release For either artist outside of their respective bands Which is another reason I chose this So it was Stevie Nicks' first post-Fleawood Mac And Don Henley's first post-Eagles Of course, the Eagles had, had broken up just prior to this Never. Nix and Henley performed the song together once last time in 2019 uh, when she became the first woman inducted as a solo artist and as a member of a band into Correct. the rock hall. There have been like 16 or 17 men that have been inducted for both, but she is the first woman, and Henley has not yet. Correct. Eventually he may. Uh, of course, he's in there with the Eagles.
1: Yeah. Now, yeah, she was the first, and actually this year Tina Turner is number two. That true. So, very good. Yeah. But yes, Stevie yep. Nicks was, was the first. Um, yeah, not you know, it's kinda of funny because Leather and I prefer the song Leather and Lace to Stop Dragging My Heart Around, but I prefer Tom Petty to Don Henley. Okay which, well, which yeah, is why yeah, I wouldn't yeah. stop dragging my heart around, which um we'll talk about next week for side B because it is my choice, but I will defer to you because um honestly I I kinda prefer leather and lace. But
0: Well um, we'll see what 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 I'd like to see maybe Maybe it comes down to how the playlist is, is sequenced as well. Oh,
1: that's true. Or we could throw them both out and go with whenever I call your friend. <laughs> You friend. <know? laughs> um, which, you know, Stevie Nicks didn't even get credited on that one. It wasn't until the reissue, I think, in, in 2000.
0: I'd have Not to on, the, on the record label?
1: No, it was, just, it was just credited to Kenny Loggins. Wow. And um, it, it wasn't until the album was reissued and remastered, which I'm, the year is escaping me. That, that's a great song. That she was actually added, uh, that you know, the, the, to the byline. So that's
0: a great song. Yeah. yeah, it is. I forgot about that one.
1: All right, your All turn. All right, my number two. My next song was written by Narada Michael Walden, who also produced the track, and Jeffrey Cohen. Uh, it's an ebullient duet between Clarence Clemens and Jackson Brown.
0: You're a friend of mine,
1: and it is a testament to long lasting friendship, exactly. Um, Clemens was already well-known as the sax player, of course, for Springsteen's E Street Band, Um, you know, with Wailing Solos on Born to Run and Jungle Land, among others. But he decided to try a solo effort while the boss was still riding high from the massive success of Born in the USA. And the move paid off with two hit singles, You're a Friend of Mine and I Want to Be Your Hero. Clemens played sax on another Walden and Colin collaboration, Aretha Franklin's Freeway of Love which was number three hit earlier that year. Um, Clemens and Brown really were friends. I mean, they met years earlier when Brown did a show with Springsteen. And shortly after Clemens' death in 2011, Brown told Rolling Stone that doing You're a Friend of Mine was such a thrill, um, he, he, he was just really surprised to be asked. He was surprised that Clemens didn't ask Bruce to sing the song with him. But he said maybe that would, would have been too obvious, and I'm not sure that Bruce... Had you know his vocal style would would have fit. I kind of agree with him on that. Um, but he said he was thrilled to be on the record. Um, actress Daryl Hannah, who was dating Jackson Brown at the time, provided backing vocals and appeared in the music video. Do you remember the music I video? I do. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's on the couch recording the two of them as they're as they're performing in their living room. Um, the video featured Clemens and Brown. You know they're just jamming, uh, and with the help of Walden on drums while Hannah. Relaxed on the sofa, Um, you know. It was a it was a a video that was in heavy rotation at the time. Um, This was the biggest solo hit from a member of the East Street Band. Two years earlier, the group's guitarist, mandolinist, uh, Stephen Van Zandt, he hit number sixty three on the Hot One Hundred with "Forever," but Clarence Clemens still, to this day, holds, uh, you know, the 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 record. He's the only East Street uh, member who ever really scored a successful um, solo single. Um, before he joined the East Street uh, in 1984, guitarist Smells Loughran uh, bubbled under at number 109 with the single Nights Fade Away. But I, I, I love, I have always loved this song. And it, it's just, I don't know, it's just another rousing up-tempo and yeah, to I, I
0: totally forgot about it. In fact, I owned the 45. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't think of this one.
2: Yeah.
1: my mind because i I played it a few times and i i I, i'm really weird because i sequence my songs coming in just because you know as i make my choices i kind of build a playlist in my mind of how i would put my songs if they stood alone this one coming out of easy lover i mean it it doesn't skip a beat It, it the two of them are you know it's the perfect um I'm not saying we had
0: to sequence. No, that's it that fine,
1: way, yeah, but, yeah. Um yeah, no, it, it just this one just came immediately to mind when we said duets. So
0: Yeah, no, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, Daryl you know who Daryl Hanna is married to now? No, I don't. Neil Young.
1: Is she really? Yeah. Huh. I, I would not have guessed that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very cool. All right. Let's uh move on to my second pick, and this is actually pretty recent, two thousand and sixteen. Okay. 2016. Um, the song co written by Glenn Hansard. Do you know where I'm going with this? Uh, possibly. Uh, it's a Glenn Hansard and Marquita Glova A lot of people don't know this song. Keep, it, was, keep, it was somewhat obscure. Keep, keep going. Well, in 2007, um, let's go back a little before that. Do you remember the movie The Commitments? I do. Okay, Glenn Hansard love, was in The Commitments. love that movie. Yeah. Um, he went on in, in Ireland and he formed his own band, The Frames. Yes. And then he and uh, the producer and maybe the director of The Commitments decide, had this idea for a movie about these two young lovers, musicians, that kind of come together, and it's a love story, and it's called Once. The movie came out in 2007, later became a Broadway musical.
1: Yeah, I'm not familiar with
0: the Okay, with oh, the then you'll like this. This is a great, great duet. One of my favorite ballads of okay. all time.
1: Yeah, I, I, the names all sounded familiar, but yeah, I, I is that is that the song? Yes, it's called movies?
0: Falling Slowly. No, Falling Slowly. Falling I'm Slowly. sorry, it's the name of the song.
1: Okay, no, you got me. I, I don't know this one.
0: And and we actually appeared on the Frames album. The, the, the movie once was in production. The Frames recorded it, and so it actually appeared right before um, the actual movie itself, but then appears in the movie with the two of them singing. So there are a couple versions. Actually, there's a third one. They had a side band, so it's kind of complicated. So there are different versions out there. I'm going with the one from from Once. Um, The song uh, won the Oscar that year for Best Original Song. Uh, It was almost disqualified from Oscar nomination. If you remember from last week, we talked about how it had to be an original song for the Oscar for the film. But, of course, I I just mentioned it appeared on the Frames album. But because the song was specifically written for Once, they allowed it, even though it, it was released in a different version prior to it. Got it. Okay. Um, Bob Dylan loved the movie once so much that he asked Hansert and Erglova to open for him on one of his tours. Huh. So that's kind of cool. Um, the song somehow failed to crack the top 40 in the US, which surprised me, um, but later became a popular choice for covers on singing contest shows. Um, back in the day, I guess would have been around 2016, it's hard for any to rem- think that we were still watching American Idol back then but you know uh, <laughs> my, my wife and I would watch American Idol in the, in the early years and uh, I remember there was a local um, a northern Ohio uh, native uh, Crystal Bowersox actually oh. I think she made it to number two she's from Toledo yeah, I remember. And, and, and she was very folky very indigo girlish and so we followed her
1: she had a killer performance of Midnight Train to Georgia yes I remember that yeah
0: well and and I may have had something to do with that really Yes, I, I totally, until you mentioned this, I might as well say it. We were, you know, we watch and, and they came to, they tell you the week before what, what the choice is. The artists don't know until that week. They have one week to prepare. Right. And so when they said, I don't know if it was specifically Motown or soul music, it was some um, uh, category like that. And I turned to my wife and I said, oh my gosh, you know, Indigo Girls have this great version of Midnight Train to Georgia. I said, she is very similar, you know, in the same vein as Indigo Girls, she should do that song. And so I got on the internet that Monday and there's, American Idol had this, like, uh, I don't know, like a, what do you call it? When you can just post, like a board, you can post comments and so forth. Okay, And you can post comments to each of the individual artists. And I went on there and I just said, hey, just want to throw this out there. And this was like Monday morning. If you haven't chosen a song yet, you should consider Midnight Train to Georgia because Indigo Girls have a great version of it. And so that was it. I forgot about it. I told one person at work who was a big fan. And then the next week she comes out and she sings Midnight Train to Georgia. And I have no idea. It's not like she wrote back and said, thank you for the suggestion. She may have been thinking that way all along, but I'd like to think that eh, maybe my suggestion had something to do with it. Cool. Anyway, either way, it's cool. Sorry yeah. for that detour. <laughs> anyway, we so we, we followed her, and um, it was a duets week. They usually have a duets week where you know two of the American Idol um, contestants sing together. And so she was very familiar with this movie. Um, I, I had seen the movie, so I was familiar with it as well. But I didn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of the frames or anything, although they're they're great. But uh, she suggested um, with her partner, I forget his name, that they do this. And so uh, they watched the film and fell in love with it. That's following slowly by Glenn Hansard and Markita Urglova.
1: Okay. now very cool. All right. My number three, uh, this one uh, is actually, you, you can only find it on a Greatest Hits album, uh, Greatest Hits 1976 to 86. Um, and it was released in 1976 It hit number one. It is a duet between Elton John and Kiki D. And it is Don't Go
0: Breaking My Heart. It, it's going to be a week where you steal all of my... I had to go to the... Am I stealing another one? Well, again, I tried to do... This is why I shouldn't do what you do. I thought, okay, I'll do what Alan does, and I will go through and actually position my songs as if I were making a playlist. And so this is how I would end the entire mixtape. Side B, last song, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Really? You yeah. would end it with this one? Well, yeah, I, I started with an up-tempo. I started side B with an up-tempo, my memory only had three, and then right. I ended in the mixtape with up-tempo. Okay. And that's why I chose this one. Okay. Anyway, we have a match. Yeah, all
1: right. Yeah, I may not get to my alternates then because I don't know if we'll match beyond the, the up-tempo tunes. Um, okay, well, uh, according to Kiki D, both she and Elton John were big fans of the classic Motown duets by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Uh, and as there had not been any other songs recorded in tribute to them, the two artists thought that they would do one themselves. Uh, John recorded his part in Toronto, and then the tape was sent to London where Kiki D recorded her vocal. According to producer Gus Dudgeon, who was with John in Canada, Elton actually sang about three quarters of the song, leaving Kiki D only maybe four lines. And Dudgeon said to John, hang on a minute, is this supposed to be a duet or a guest appearance? And Elton replied, a duet. So Dudgeon reminded Elton that uh, you've got to give her at least 50% of the song. (laughs) So John recorded his part uh, again. Uh, in Toronto, the tapes were sent to London and Kiki Dee received them. She couldn't help but laugh because John had recorded the entire song nonetheless, singing her vocals in a terrible high-pitched voice, apparently, so that she would know which lines were hers to sing. Um, originally, Elton and Kiki were going to record a cover version of The Four Tops' Loving You is Sweeter Than Ever. Uh, but Elton John and his songwriting partner, Bernie Taupin, instead wrote the song using the pseudonym Anne Orson and carte blanche. Right. <laughs> uh, it was uh, wise to change their minds, as this was Elton John's first number one in his native UK, actually. He had to wait 14 years for his next UK number one.
0: It wasn't his first number. It was, It was. The, he didn't have a number one after that until, I think, Sacrifice. Right, Sacrifice. He'd had previous ones.
1: Really? Because yeah. in, in my notes, I saw that this was his first number one in the UK.
0: Oh, no, he had. We'll verify that. But
1: Yeah, we'll have to check that because yeah. that, that's what I found. Um, anyway, he, he had several in the US, of course. Uh, when when John performed this on a season two episode of The Muppet Show in 1977, uh, he performed the song with Miss Piggy. And, uh, the, you know, the porcine uh, puppet was clearly smitten with Elton John. Late in the duet, she exclaimed, Eat your heart out, Kiki. Right, so, right um, I remember that. There you go. Uh, even get a Muppets reference in there. Um, but that's my next one, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, which today is memed everywhere. It's always, Don't Go Bacon My Heart. Uh, I couldn't if I fried with the bacon and eggs. I, I don't get it. But, it's an easy one to meme. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, um, just to kind of piggyback on that, um, I'm surprised you didn't mention this because you love Dusty Springfield was the original choice oh yeah 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 and then um, she turned I don't know if she was having her substance abuse issues at the time yeah, or she, what yeah, she, she was, turned them down she was um, spiraling at that point so then then they got Kiki D on board yeah the song um, stayed at number one on the US charts for six weeks and was the second biggest selling single of that year do you know what number one was oh boy um, in
1: 1976 I, it's, no. a, it's
0: a little little band by the name of wings silly love songs silly, okay. was the number one now this was another difficult one now I, I i considered don't let the sun go down on me although that would have been a cover with right george michael with george michael but yeah. that really wasn't part of one of those tribute albums so i i considered it yeah but i really really wanted to use whatever gets you through the night with john lennon because it's an up-tempo one but so is don't go breaking my heart so i figured not everybody knows "Whatever Gets You Through the Night" as much, even though it was a number one song. It was. Yeah. Um, I went ahead with uh, with Kiki you D. You know,
1: I didn't even remember "Whatever Gets You." Had I remembered what, it, what "Whatever Gets You Through the Night," I may have went John Lennon over Kiki D. I, I just
0: well, that one I, I went,
1: blanked on that one.
0: He asked he asked uh, uh, John to uh, or John asked uh, Elton to to record with him because it was a Lennon uh, composition. And in the studio, when they completed it, um, I believe it uh, was was it. Wasn't it a wager? It was a wager. One of them said this is number one song. The other one, I think Elton said, this is definitely number one. And John Lennon was like, what? No, no way. And so the wager was if it did hit number one, then Elton would have to appear with... On stage. um, On stage with, with Lennon, which he did. All right, Alan. I hand it to you. You are correct. It is. It was his first number one in the UK, which really, really, really shocks me.
1: Yeah, I. You know, I. It shocked me too. But yeah, I was just. I, I found it on several websites that it was his first number one. Wow.
0: So. Yeah, in in the United States, he he had quite a few. It surprises me that uh, that he was more popular in the U.S. Let me see here. Let me check. Yeah, he had uh, Crocodile Rock went to number one, and so did Benny and the Jets so did whatever he gets to the other night well that's the John Lennon one we just talked about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds went to number one in the US Philadelphia Freedom went to number one in the US Island Girl went to number one in the US yeah wow all of those songs went to number one in the US and not in the UK
1: yeah wow now it took Kiki D to wonder why put him to the to have him sit atop the top of the charts that shocks
0: me All right, my turn your turn All right. Let's see here, let's go back up, and my next choice, okay, so when we, I'm not sure whose idea was it to do duets, if it was yours or mine, but when um, it came, when when the idea of the duets was mentioned, this is the first song that came to mind. Okay. This is what I think of when I think of duets. Um, This is a song that I really, 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 really wanted to include on the Couple Skates episode. Okay. Okay. All right.
1: Could be a few I'm, I'm not going to make a guess yet
0: But like I said last week When I talked about the same artist um, Even though it's technically an 80s song Because it's 1980 it's, it, it's more of a 70s product And I'm referring to Olivia Newton-John and Cliff Richard With Suddenly From the movie Xanadu I love Suddenly
1: We're going to have another artist
0: match Did you go with Summer Nights? Uh, not Summer Nights uh, You're the one that I want? You're the one that I ah, want yes. yeah.
1: so Again, side B Right. And I will defer to Suddenly Because I love this song but yeah, I went, you're the one that I want on the on next week's episode.
0: So. Well, I, I'm, I'm reading from my notes right now. Go for if it. If you don't believe me, you can read over my shoulder. I am anticipating a potential artist face-off if you went with, you're the one that I want.
1: <laughs> you would be correct, <laughs> right there.
0: Um, <laughs> uh, the single was a modest hit in 1980. It only reached number 20 on the charts. I'm not sure if it's because Xanadu was kind of a flop in the theater at the time or if Several, I think several of the singles had already hit. Of course, ELO was on half of the record, right. and Olivia and John well, and, and other artists were in the other half.
1: Magic was huge. Magic
0: was huge, and the, and the song Xanadu and All Over the World, and there were just right. so many different hits from that. So maybe people were tired of Xanadu at that point. Um, but yeah, many listeners may not have heard the song or forgotten it. Um, you know, Xanadu in our family is the, the number one guilty pleasure movie of all time. My wife uh, grew up watching it. She um, record- she was lucky. As a kid, they had a satellite dish and a VCR. And so they just recorded all sorts of stuff off cable.
1: And- it, it It's it's so kitschy. You it know? is. It's, it's great. I, when you combine roller skates and Gene Kelly, it's, it's it just, is. you know, I love the movie and I shouldn't because it is, it, it's just so bad that it's good yeah. You know.
0: but after after reading you know, in the success of greece of course they had you know living and john was originally kind of a, a country artist and and like a lot of country artists that have crossover potential like most recently or at right, taylor swift um they of course you can make a lot more money as a pop artist than purely a country artist true and uh, greece was that big vehicle for helping her cross over and after the success they were looking for another vehicle for her and they kind of hastily threw together xanadu if you ever um Uh, read about the history of how the movie was made. In fact, there's a really interesting podcast called uh, How Did This Get Made, which is about all these different films that uh, we we wonder how in the heck they, not not only did they get the budget, but that it was actually distributed at some point. And so this is one of the episodes, How Did Xanadu Get Made? And um, the money was there because, of course, Olivia Newton-John was was, was a proven commodity. But they rushed it, there were too many different creative voices, and it became the mishmash disaster that it is. But I love it for that. Yeah. And the music is great, and it's such a, a a spectacle. It's a great bridge from the 70s to the 80s. It is.
1: I mean, the acting aside.
0: <laughs> you got the tubes Which, in there. You got Gene it, Kelly, like you said.
1: Yep. Yeah. No, it's it's a great tune. You know, I I don't think Olivia's product in the 70s is, is you know, I don't think it gets enough credit. I'm not a country fan, um, per se, even though I have two country songs on uh, my episode here today um, but you know Olivia Newton-John's work in the 70s have you ever been mellow and I honestly love you I mean it, it's some powerful stuff I mean she was yeah I mean she was a proven as you said proven commodity I mean she she was a, a perfect pick and and she was gorgeous of course so playing it you know one of the muses made perfect sense right. um,
0: very cool this is the point of the movie where, where Sonny is gone to the property the old property they're going to turn into this new disco roller rink dance club whatever it's going right. to be called Xanadu. She's on
1: skates and going in and out of the spotlight if I remember correctly.
0: Correct. And it's 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 the scene where they kind of fall in love where she kind of reveals herself to him. Right. So.
1: She
2: walks in and I'm suddenly a hero I'm taking in my hopes begin Oh,
0: Been a
1: while since I've seen
0: Xanadu. Well, we have it on DVD. If you'd ever <laughs> like to borrow it, it it's—I
1: I believe it's streaming on a couple of different sites. So,
0: but um, just make sure you have a few cocktails while you're watching it. It makes it more fun.
1: Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> some might argue it's—it's it, it's much needed.
0: So, <laughs> the acting's so bad. It, oh my it gosh, it really
1: is. And and the fact that he just came off of the, the Warriors, which is one of my favorite films in the '70s. I mean, yeah, he. It, uh, both of them. I mean, the acting is just.
0: It, I mean, the dialogue is bad to begin with, so part of it is the fact that they have to say... It is, yeah. The screenplay r- really is awful. ...really horrible dialogue. And, and
1: even Gene Kelly. I mean, you're talking about, you know, one of the major, major Hollywood A-listers. Even his acting in that film is just painful to watch at times. Um, okay, no, very cool. When, when the time comes, I will be more than happy to defer, because, I, I, again, that's another one that I forgot about, and I love love the song um, yeah just that's, but,
0: that's two in a row but the we do way. want to balance it so well yeah. we
1: do but I'm gonna, I'm almost exclusively at okay. tempo right. so I, you you're
0: be, the one that I want I, 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 I'm i not opposed to that at all I just like I said this was the song that first came to mind so I, I it wasn't even a question well, for me
1: yeah then yeah I had to defer it I mean the idea that this is uh, the immediate first choice yeah all right. we'll go with that alright right. I'll take you up on still that. want to give some credit to, to Greece when we get there just to have it played on the, the episode yep but, all right, so my turn. Your turn. All right, my number four. Here is one of the few country tunes that uh, I'm, I'm bringing in. It's not often that we include country.
0: Uh, I have a country artist, but it's not necessarily a country song. Gotcha. Okay. It may be maybe a matcher.
1: Yeah, I um, I went with. I, I had to. I you know, okay. Well, first of all, here's the joke, right, associated with the song. What do you call Dolly Parton lying down in a bathtub?
0: Oh no. Islands in the Stream. You got it. And that, yes. now we have an artist match. Okay. And of the three Kenny Rogers songs that I'm familiar with that are duets, that's the only one I can't stand. Really? <laughs> yes. I know it's the one that everyone thinks it's, of. Yeah. It's, I, I was back and forth between Shina Easton and Kim Carnes.
1: Which one did you go with?
0: I went with Kim Carnes. Okay. Just because we don't have enough Kim Carnes in our life. Yeah. Well, I, I would have went Shina. I, I would have gone. But that's a Bob Seger cover. It so is, I yeah. didn't. I well, didn't that's
1: true. It is yeah. a cover. Yeah, we've got tonight. But I am... Um, Okay, y'all.
0: You know, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, go anyway. ahead. Okay, yeah. I will <laughs> I'll defer to you on this anyway just because what
1: well, this was the big one. It was the big you know, one. And it, it's just an awful song. I yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the song. <laughs> my my wife loves. I know a loves lot of people like this song it. Yeah. and you know, she was the one that actually at one point cuz it wasn't actually on my list for a while. And she said, "How in the hell are you doing a duets episode and you're not included?" And I you know, I mowed it over and she, she's not wrong. I mean, this is this song is loved it, by so maybe
0: the worst metaphor for sex. Ever penned.
2: <laughs> it's
0: gross. Why? Anyway, go why, ahead. Now, wait, why is it gross? It just, I don't know. Maybe I have a warped sense of imagination.
1: <laughs> okay. Anyway. Anyway, um, Islands in the Stream. It was written by the Bee Gees.
0: I picture it, two people having sex, like, in a creek somewhere. That's why it's gross. In a
1: creek. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well that was a detour. Yeah, um anyway, Islands in the Stream, it uh, was written by the Bee Gees, actually is an R&B song. Uh something that I never knew. Um and on March 10th, 2009, when Maurice Gibb appeared on the BBC Breakfast program, he explained that it was originally written for Marvin Gaye. But it was recorded instead as a duet by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. As with the Gibb brothers also contributing vocals, which I also didn't know. I, there was a lot here that I, I just wasn't familiar with because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the song. Um, anyway, something um, else that I never knew: the title comes from an Ernest Hemingway story that was published in 1970, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, it was the first of his books to be published posthumously, for what it's worth. Anyway, Islands in the Stream, it topped the Hot 100 for two weeks. It topped the country charts for two weeks. It topped the Adult Contemporary chart for four weeks. Um, So it was number one across three different Billboard charts. It was the 1985 American Music Awards winner for Favorite Country Single. And 20 years later, it topped the CMT's poll of the best country duets of all time. Uh, It'd be 17 years before another country song, Lone Star's Amazed, reached the summit of, of the Hot 100. Uh, the Bee Gees were focused on songwriting around this time, since their look and sound had fallen out of favor with the demise of disco. Um, but the group, you know, they could write in a variety of styles, and they proved it once more with, with this song. Members of the group also wrote several hits for their brother Andy Gibb, as well as for Barbara Streisand and Dionne Warwick. Um, their extensive songwriting accomplishments earned them induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in '94. Anyway, here is a wild but true story. You ready for this? One time in Vegas, as a joke, Kenny Rogers went into a lounge where there were were artist impersonators performing on stage. Okay? He didn't tell anybody it was really him. And he eventually got up on stage and sang Islands in the Stream with a girl who looked like Dolly and, according to Rogers, sang like Dolly. He said it, it was essentially Dolly Parton on stage. And Rogers said that the woman was the real deal, and they sang Islands in the Stream, and it sounded sounded as though it came right off the 45. So anyway, the two of them, after they performed Islands in the Stream, when it was over, a man who had been drinking in the lounge approached Rogers and said to him, I'll tell you one thing, mister. You're a hell of a lot better than the real guy. So I, I found that hilarious. Kenny
0: Rogers kind of
1: conveyed that story.
0: I thought you were going to say, you sound nothing like him. No, nope, no. Nope. <laughs> uh,
1: apparently, he sounded better than himself.
2: Baby, when I met you, there was peace on I set out to get you with a fine-tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something going to me that I can't explain hold me closer and I feel no
1: Kenny Rogers, um, he he was basically working uh, with uh, the Gibbs brothers. Um, he said that the collaboration of of this of this duet uh, was the beginning of his longtime friendship with Parton, and he gave her credit for bringing life to the song. He had been singing on his own for just four days when he was ready to give up, and because it wasn't written as a duet originally. Barry Gibb, uh, it had gotten to the point, even he didn't like the song anymore. (laughs) So Gibb suggested bringing Parton on board, and as luck would have it, she was recording in the same studio as Rogers. So she came marching into the room, uh, and once she came in and started singing, the song was never the same Took on a personality of its own, and yeah, you like you, I'm not a huge fan. The song does grow on me with repeat listening, but but I just, I'm still not a huge fan. But yes, yeah, so many people love this song that I just felt it, it'd be, you know, I, this would be one that we'd be tarred and feathered if we did not include.
0: I'll take so. it a step further. If I were held down, bound and ganked in a wet basement somewhere and tortured, the most success. That my oppressor could have is playing this song over and over and over again. That is harsh. That is.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> dark. I know <laughs> that is that's harsh. dark. <laughs> wow, you do not like this song. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. All right. Well, there there you go. There's my number four. So All
0: yeah. right. No, good, good. We had obviously Kenny Rogers was one of those like Phil Collins right. and, and Elton John that had numerous duets. Um, yeah needs Easton one, I, I like the Sheen Easton one, so don't get me wrong, that, right. I like that. But
1: it, but it is a cover, you're
0: right. But 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 the Kim Carnes one does not get played nearly enough anymore, and it's it's just a, a great song. Well,
1: Kim Carnes doesn't get played.
0: No, really. well, uh, she kind of disappeared. Actually, she she's continued to like write and produce, and, and, and she's still very active in the music business, but as far as the solo career, I mean, she had... I think that if, not only was it the biggest song of 1981, it might have been the biggest song of the 80s. Uh, Betty Davis, Betty Davis, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we or the world might have actually beaten that, but yeah, I mean, that song was, oh, was number one for yeah, like 13 huge. or 14 weeks. All right. Next one is one that I brought up last season and it lost, so we're going to try it again. Okay. Now it lost to a song that I like even better, probably, so it's fine. Um, actually, I brought it up for the um, roller skating. Uh, 80s love songs and it lost to Glory of Love.
1: Okay. Next
0: time I fall in love.
1: Well, it's not going to lose this time because I have no Cetera and I, <laughs> I definitely don't have any Amy Grant. The so only you know.
0: other Cetera would have been with Cher from Chances Are. Which was not going to happen. Which <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we didn't include that. So. Yeah,
1: no. Um, next time I fall definitely has its has earned its place
0: this Yes, time. next time I fall in love by Peter Cetera and Amy Grant in um, 1986. Um, so I'm just going to kind of review. We actually talked about it briefly on that so I'll just review it. But, uh the song, which did hit number one, so not bad for for Amy Grant crossing over for the first time. Um, Amy Grant was a contemporary Christian artist from early '80s, late '70s, early '80s, and she was looking to kind of cross over into the to the pop charts. And the song was co written by a few songwriters who actually intended the song uh, for Chicago, and then they heard the Chicago. Um, lost Peter Cetera, that Peter Cetera left the band, and so they were kind of discouraged. But the demo ended up still coming across the desk of Mr. David Foster. Here's David Foster again. And uh, he loved the song. And and he called him back. He said, but but there's one adjustment I want to make. And he said, this song has to be a duet. And the songwriters were like, well, you're David Foster, so all right. So, of course, David Foster called up Pete and said, hey, got a song for you. He listened to it, loved it. And they had to come up with somebody to to sing uh, with him. And so they went through all sorts of different combinations of people they thought might work. But uh, but then when David Foster heard about Amy Grant trying to come over, um, they paired them up, and it turned out it worked. And they actually recorded together. A lot of times, we haven't talked about this, but a lot of times, well, you mentioned it with Elton John. A lot of times, the artists do not actually appear in the studio together Correct. when they record because of their busy schedules and, and so forth. Um, you mentioned the case. I think one was in Canada and one was in the UK. Uh, I always felt like, though, those probably aren't as the duets probably don't come off as authentic when you're not in the same room with the person
1: yeah well definitely i would think when you're recording you know individually by yourself it it you know there's something lost in in the recording of it um that you know the audience may not be able to pick up on it but i i think there's always an enthusiasm when you because you feed off one another's
0: energy. Well, that's what I was going to say. You may yeah. not know, it may not ruin the track or make the track, but, but it can make it better if you have a chemistry right. exactly in the studio together and when you can see each other. And not everybody has the chemistry. I'm sure there are people that have been pulled together and said, we probably should have recorded these yeah. two separate. But, um, but yeah, they, they, they recorded together, and um, the two of them then went on to having a very successful uh, very successful solo careers through at least the 80s. Um, Amy Grant had a couple crossover hits, and uh, so did uh, Peter Cetera.
1: Well, she had "Baby, Baby" in every heartbeat.
0: Yeah, those but, are the two big ones.
1: Right, but and then this one. She had
0: a "Love Will Find a Way," which was a kind of her first minor hit I right after this. I
1: don't remember that one. Okay, yeah. um, no, very cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a. Here's the thing: Peter Cetera is just—he's one of those artists that. I have a love-hate relationship with because it takes me back to middle school well, junior high we didn't attend a middle school but it takes me back to junior high and it's I'm flooded with memories that makes me appreciate a song that otherwise I would just categorize as a guilty pleasure you know and Amy Grant I I don't dislike Amy Grant but I you know it's definitely late 80s pop which was kind. Of, I was kind of
0: some of it might have gone into the early 90s too
1: I, yeah I think it yeah. yeah because I remember when we did 1991 when I was looking up dates Amy Grant was on the charts in 91 so
0: yeah yeah no, I, I mean I, to me this is songs above a guilty pleasure I think it's a really solid oh it is yeah, like yeah. I mentioned before David Foster for me is hit or miss I blame him for ruining the late 80s with all the, <laughs> the synthesized production yeah but but he has its moments and this, this is such a great great song
2: love like a How it leads me back again to heart.
1: Right, well next I'm going to bring to you arguably one of the possibly the greatest duet of all time um, at least uh, so far as I'm concerned um, but first I'm going to step back uh, few skeletons loom larger in the history of Motown records than the ghost of Tammy Terrell okay um, she was a talented vocalist uh, she was singing back up and studying medicine before being discovered and signed by the label Terrell was quickly paired up with Marvin Gaye, which sparked one of the most celebrated musical collaborations in the history of R&B, really in the history of popular music. Gaye was no stranger to duet singing. He had already been paired up before with Mary Wells and Kim Weston, but nothing prepared him for Terrell's unique vocal talent. At the time, Gaye, he he already had a strong foothold on the charts, but he held himself back as a live performer because he suffered from a, a very acute stage fright, um, but touring with Terrell, he learned to relax and he gained new confidence on stage. She actually became a friend, an ally. She, she and Marvin Gaye were best friends, essentially. They were not romantically involved. But you know, Otis Williams of uh, The Temptations said it best, if you didn't know any better, you would think that they were dating because the, the chemistry between the two of them was so palpable. And that intimacy was carried over to their 1967 album, United. For previous recordings, just as we had we just finished talking about, Gay and Terrell actually recorded their individual tracks separately. But this time they sang face-to-face and the ease and the warmth, they were they were just greatly magnified. So throughout the record, they actually began to ad-lib. They, they you know, ad-libbed each other's names and, and it just gave a weight and conviction to the songs that really to this point only Stax artists uh, on the, the Stax labels um, could could match, at least at that time. Ain't No Mountain High Enough was one of several hit singles to come from the album, and it was a carefree, danceable, romantic love song that became the signature duet between Gay and Terrell. Today it is regarded as one of the most important records ever released by Motown, and it does generally top most most people's lists of, of the greatest duets of all time. You know, um, it's actually not my favorite duet by the two of them, but it, it felt obvious. It felt obligatory. Well, and, and I was, didn't.
0: I knew you were going to have it, yeah, so I didn't even put it on my list. I, I,
1: I, w- I came real close to, to I, I wanted your precious love, and I wanted you know it takes two, or ain't nothing but the real thing. But then I I sat back and I thought, y- you've got to include. You know, I, you know that is their signature duet, so that's that's what I went with. But here's the thing: not long after the song's release, tragedy struck. I think we talked about this on a previous episode mm-hmm. a little. Yeah. Terrell and Gay were performing on stage when she suddenly collapsed into his arms. She was later diagnosed with a brain tumor, and after numerous surgeries, Terrell died at the age of 24. Um, at her funeral, Terrell's mother banned anyone at Motown from attending uh, the funeral. She, she basically criticized the label for not helping her daughter through the illness. She claimed that they tried to cover up uh, Tammy's condition while releasing albums without Terrell's approval. The only exception to the Motown ban was a devastated Marvin Gaye. Who delivered the eulogy? Actually, and gay in many ways, he never recovered from the loss. He withdrew from live performances, and he adopted the introspective, uh, you know, vibe. Really, that that introspection that informed his brilliant career-changing '71 album, which we used for the questions episode. What's going on? Um, his memories of one of the most inspired partnerships in all of soul music would never leave him. And really, her loss set in motion his steady descent into depression, which, you know, you can argue was in many ways responsible for, you know, the, what happened to him, you know, in that exchange with his father that took his life uh, so prematurely.
2: Listen, babe.
1: Ain't No Mountain High Enough, that would be my, my number five. Another
0: up-tempo, but again, I, I, it was off the table for me because I knew you'd have it. Yeah, so there we go. All right. Your turn. Well, I got frightened a second there when you said the greatest duet of all time because I thought there would be a fourth match, but I was relieved to hear that. Okay. I get to, to me, I love Ain't No Mountain High Enough, but to me, this next is the greatest duet of all time. Hmm. Can't you're never going to convince me otherwise okay greatest written greatest performed it is the classic of them all and even though I thought of suddenly when we said duets suddenly it's just more of kind of a fun little you know sappy song this is just this is it man
1: endless love it's on my alternates list alternates, how it's, can it's you- a match but it's not you want to know why When you said that you went all ballads or mostly ballads, I knew you had
0: it. All right. right.
1: I knew knew you'd have endless love. So I I threw it on my alternates just as a, you know, just in case. But yeah, I I assumed you had it.
0: I am not the only one that feels that Lionel Richie and Diana Ross's 1991 single is the greatest, uh, named by Billboard as the greatest duet of all time. Uh, It was actually written by Lionel Richie and, you know, he had kind of progressed through the Commodores he started out as a saxophone player Correct. he went on then to you know writing and and, and performing and singing and so forth and then he thought it might be time to break out on a solo career Well,
1: this was what really launched. This is what launched.
0: This is what launched. This was when he wrote this song. They were actually looking another movie. I told you I have quite a few movie songs. They were looking for a a theme to the um, the adaptation of the of the novel "Endless Love," which the movie wasn't that great. No, the
1: movie flopped. It it was Brooke Shields, right? But but yeah, the movie flopped. But but this song was. What was it? I, like nine weeks? It
0: was, uh, yes. They it weren't was I don't actually.
1: Think, they weren't consecutive weeks, I don't think. But I it think stayed
0: it at number one. It stayed at number one for nine weeks. Right. But it was not the number one song of 1981. That honor goes to. I just said it. Not too. So long, long.
1: Love, Oh no. Um. Eighty. You just said it.
0: Kim Carnes. Oh, Betty, 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 Betty Davis, Davis. eyes was number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This was number two. As much as I love Kim Carnes, in her short little time. Um, in the on the music charts, I still think "Endless Love" should have been number one. The song was the biggest single for both Ritchie and Ross. So think about that. Correct. As successful as Lionel Richie's career would be following this, and as successful as Diana Ross's career was, upcoming to this point, and with the Supremes as well, um, this is their biggest selling hit.
1: Well, you know, Diana Ross kind of fell out of favor. Just a, a couple of years after this, I mean, she never really scored well, this is, a major
0: hit. It was a really kind of a, a transition for both, right? Lionel yeah. Richie is just beginning his solo career, and she's just kind of beginning, yeah, the, ending her yeah, career. Yeah, the
1: trajectories were kind of mirror images of one another.
0: It was nominated for Best Original Song for the Oscar. It lost two, any guesses? One that we left off of last week's episode, which is a crime, Arthur's Theme. Like oh, Christopher yeah. Cross.
1: I'm still not sure why you were so sure I would have Arthur's theme. I, I don't
0: know. I thought, maybe I'm wrong in thinking you loved that movie as a kid. Oh, I did. Okay. And well, I, that's why I And
1: I, I love that song, but I just. That's yeah. why
0: I just assumed. I always gotcha. knew you were a fan of the film, oh, yeah. so I thought it would be awesome.
1: Oh, Arthur's. It's one of my favorite films from the, the early 80s. But yeah, no, i Well, we, we've we already said we're probably going back to another 80s movie. Yeah. Uh, and of course, in the now
0: future. I've used a bunch of. Uh, um, <laughs> True. Yeah. So there are some. I'm sorry. There are just some movies that you don't reboot, and there are some songs you just don't cover. Um, so unfortunately, this one has been covered, and it went to number two. So who am I to say? I guess a whole other generation got to enjoy it. Um, Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey covered this song. Well, wow, and
1: and so too, Lana Ritchie actually did a cover or, or did a a new version with Shania Twain.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, not too long ago. i just leave the original alone. <laughs> Comedy fans will recognize this uh, from its hilarious use in Happy Gilmore. Do you remember? I, I, yeah, um, I where remember. Where he rents out the hockey arena. Uh, Adam Sandler rents out the hockey arena to have a romantic um, date uh, with this love interest. And the Zamboni driver lip syncs the song dramatically in the background. Yeah, that's well, classic <laughs> as they, scene. As they uh, practice their interlude on ice.
2: My I
1: My final selection for side A was a collaboration between Queen and David Bowie. It's credited to Queen with David Bowie. That that's uh, Bowie is mentioned as a featured artist because the B-side of the single is Queen's soul brother. So it, it ended up on Queen's album Hot Space in 81. It was recorded as at an impromptu session in Montreux, Switzerland in the summer of 81. Uh, according to Queen bass player John Deacon, Freddie Mercury did most of the songwriting on this, although everyone contributed. The lyrics deal with how pressure can destroy lives, but love can be the answer. You know, um, I think today, sadly, people hear you know the intro to this song, especially the millennials and the Gen, Gen Zers. They're probably immediately going to go, you know, Vanilla Ice when they when they hear it. Which I love
0: his. Did you ever listen to his defense? By the way, folks, what we're talking about is Vanilla Ice sampled this without permission
1: Yeah, without, yeah. without for
0: his huge hit, 91 Ice Ice Baby. Correct. And so it went to court, and um, he humorously, or his attorney, attempted to show how different the bass riff was. And there's, he's like, this is their bass riff. This is mine. And there was literally no, no difference. No difference,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, no difference at all. Um, the, the lyrics deal with... Um, as I said, the, the pressure, you know, they're characteristic of, of Mercury's songwriting. Deacon, however, did come up with the, that iconic two-note bass riff, although it came very close to vanishing. According to Roger Taylor um, in, in the Days of Our Lives documentary, Deacon came up with the riff, then the band went for pizza before coming back to continue rehearsals, and upon returning, Deacon had completely forgotten his idea. But luckily, Taylor eventually remembered how the bass line went. Um Basically, Brian May, he recalled to Mojo Magazine in 2008 that this, this entire you know, collaboration, it was hard because you had the four very precocious band members of Queen and David Bowie, who was precocious enough for all of them. <laughs> so um, Bowie apparently took over the song lyrically. And looking back, Brian May said, it's a great song, but it should have been mixed differently. And in fact, Freddie Mercury and David Bowie had a fierce battle over that. Uh, May added to this feeling of the sessions being fairly strained in a further interview, uh, where he noted that suddenly you've got this other person inputting, inputting, inputting. He said, uh, Bowie had a vision in his head and it was quite a difficult process, he said, and someone had to back off. He said eventually he backed off, as did Freddie, which was totally out of Mercury's character. Um, In the U.S., the song first appeared on Queen's Greatest Hits album. Um and it was released as a single at the same time as I said in the UK um it wasn't until Hot Space the album that you can actually find the track on 6 months later that the UK had a released version David Bowie performed this with Annie Lennox at the 92 concert for life in Wembley Stadium um that tribute concert to Freddie Mercury with all proceeds going to AIDS causes um, but yeah, Vanilla Ice very famously sampled Ice Ice Baby. It was a huge hit in 1990. And, you know, basically he did. He sampled it without ever clearing it. There was a settlement reached with Queen and Bowie uh, long after Vanilla Ice's song hit it big.
0: By the way, um, was a one of the greatest studio recorders. Oh yeah. In a sense that you know most artists would would sing off key, would would mess up at some point during the track. Before computers, it, you know it was quite a laborious prod, you know process of going back and basically cutting and pasting from different takes until you get a really clean take for a vocal. Yeah. And and Bowie would would go in in one or two. He laid down just perfect performance. Yep. I mean he was just perfect pitch, wouldn't have to do any sort of editing and post production.
1: Well and you know what what I found this uh, when I was, you know, looking up information about the song. Apparently Mercury and Bowie both decided they were just going to improvise the the various Sounds, I don't know how else to describe it, that, that they make in the song without sharing with each other what they were doing. Oh, okay. And Mercury, when he recorded his, Bowie cheated, went to the door and listened to everything that Mercury did. <laughs> so when it was Bowie's turn, he all of his improvisations, they perfectly, you know, um, complemented what Mercury had done. Mercury was so taken aback, he thought Bowie was a god. And he said to the, to, you know, to the production uh, staff, he said, "What do you make of this?" And they said, "Well, it's very easy when you put your ear to the door when the other person's singing." I guess Mercury got really pissed because it was just an well,
0: agreed. If it made a great uh, track. exactly,
1: yeah, I was like, you know, Mercury though was, I mean, he was so mercurial, <laughs> but I, um, yeah, he. he you know freddy was well Freddie was Freddie, but yeah bowie was smart because they do they make so many just off the wall noises and you know um, under pressure is just there's so much scatting i mean it's right. it's not scat in the traditional sense but i don't know how else to describe it but yeah had bowie not actually listened in that song would not have come off in the way that it did so it was very smart on his part
0: great song great song I right. do have it. You're number six. All right, my my last one is on my alternates list. If you um, are a fan of Dumb and Dumber, the song has now been ruined for you uh, for the rest of your life. But I'm talking about JT and Carly, his wife at the time, Carly Simon's version of Mockingbird, Mockingbird. in 1974. The song has also been used and parodied in many many movies and television shows over the years, um, and cousin. <clears throat> And covered by dozens of other artists throughout the years.
1: Yeah, my favorite is National Lampoon's Vacation when they're singing it. In the, in the, yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. The Family truckster, Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah,
0: yeah. It was a. Uh, it was. It was originally. Um, I want to say 1963, kind of minor hit um, at the time, but but um, I, I believe Carly Simon and James Taylor really brought it to yeah. the forefront um, as kind of a, a somewhat of a phenomenon at the time. Um, it was it was recorded a year after they were married so they were married in 73 eventually they split 11 years later um unfortunately they no longer speak they spoke i guess a, a bit when they were kind of continuing to raise their kids together post divorce but uh, but now they don't speak um and, and a lot of it had to do with and and i didn't i wasn't aware of this as much but but James Taylor was a heroin addict during the 80s. You know,
1: I I vaguely recall hearing that. In the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um
0: and so that was that was part of the issue was that he was struggling with his addiction and and from what I understand now it's clean um but it was just it was a difficult time to raise a family be married and and you know be addicted to that stuff. Right. The song appeared on uh Carly Simon's fourth studio album of the same name and um you know she She always said she kind of had, you mentioned stage fright earlier, stage fright um, as well. But when she began to perform with James Taylor, the two of them uh, kind of really eased her into performing and feeling comfortable performing. They were actually kind of knew each other. This is kind of a cool story. You know, they would vacation. They're they're both, you know, classic uh, East Coast New Englanders. And they both, um, their families vacationed at Martha's Vineyard and he remembers seeing she's i think four years older than him so he remembered like seeing her singing in a club when she was 16 or maybe she was 18 and he was 14 but he kind of always had a thing for her If you only know the song from Dumb and Dumber then I apologize because um, it is a hilarious uh, scene where the two of them are traveling with the the mobster and it's right after, do you know what the most annoying song, uh, sound is, what's the most annoying sound?
1: Okay, you ready for another unpopular opinion? Because I, I know, you know, telling you that I, I do not like Napoleon Dynamite or Hurt you. You don't feelings. like Dumb and Dumber. I
0: hate it. Oh my Dumber. gosh. It's one of the hate greatest movies ever. That movie,
1: it annoys the piss out of How me. How can you I say can, that?
0: Because it's, uh,
1: I am, here's the thing. I, I appreciate and I actually very much like the, the, the few movies where Jim Carrey plays a dramatic role. Eternal Sunshine, The Truman Show. His comedies, he's he's, as a comedian, he's too forced for me and it's just it feels it's almost mind-numbingly annoying I've never I've never liked Jim Carrey's comedic work ever
0: I agree with you to your point when when he was on In Living Color I was not a big fan yeah when Ace Ventura came out and The Mask I was not a big fan exactly yeah I just uh. so because of that I didn't go see Dumb and Dumber and um, somebody convinced me at the time we were in college um, that I needed to see it and I'm like no I don't like him it's too silly it's too cartoonish but I agreed to go, and that movie changed everything for me. I still don't like his earlier stuff, but for me, he found the right. For the, for, the, for that role, that performance was perfect. It was finally a, a match made in heaven between his comedic style and the character.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's better. It's better than the early work, it's better than what came after, but I still. And you
0: have, you know, with Jeff Daniels well, yeah, playing and, the. And, the and that's,
1: that's what hurts, because I, I love Jeff Daniels, but I. I just I can't do Jim Carrey when he's you know in the comedic in his comedic element I mean he's just and and, you know it's it's I I think of of like Robin Williams Robin Williams a lot of people compare their styles but Robin Williams was just a comedic genius and it was you know things would just come to him and and, you know it, it felt it was spontaneous but it never felt forced you know it just felt like Someone who just had so many ideas racing through his head that he could pull from you know anywhere at any time. Jim Carrey, I mean, just his body language, especially. I mean, just the nonverbal. I, I just, I can't do
0: it. He was also great in um, The Andy Kaufman. And well, the Moon.
1: Another dramatic work,
0: though. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Bruce Almighty. Not a fan of Bruce Almighty. Not really. No. I mean, uh, it's not a good one. I mean, I. It's me, myself, and Irene. That's a fairly brothers movie. Yeah.
1: No, I. I just can't. I. mean and and what's really sad, liar liar no
0: I, oh and these, what, are, these are great performances post no, and dumb and dumber well
1: and what's what's sad is the supporting cast in all these films you're naming i I'm a fan of you know who he was working with and even you know the mean you know, behind the camera from on Peggy Sue time. got married he's in Peggy Sue got married he
0: was one of the the, the Nick Cage's friends. I don't even recall that. I think it was his first movie okay, role. So, all right, so you named
1: a movie that... Okay, you named a comedy that I enjoy Jim Carrey in. I don't even recall him being in it. Yeah, I haven't
0: seen that movie in... Cable Guy? Oh, come on, these are classics. Nope, no. Nope. Now, The Grinch was awful. I'll, I'll give you that. Well, The Grinch, yeah. <laughs>
1: Although I had to admit that Mike Myers' Cat in the Hat was
0: worse, so... Oh, no, no. That's that's one of my guilty pleasure favorites of all are time. Are you kidding me? Yeah, when my kids were young. You know, we took them to see it. There's so much... Um, I don't want to say adult humor, but there is so much how do like like how, well, how do I say it? Um subversive almost. It if you ever get a chance to watch it, I mean well, I don't Well, know I've I mean. seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. But yeah, there's just there's there's so much in there See, I, that's hidden.
1: Well yeah, but but to hilarious. me it's hmm. I, mean, I love Mike Myers, but it just, maybe I'll go back. I've only seen it the one time, but I recall just. Oh, I've
0: probably watched it 50 times. I recall watching
1: it. And I know was, everybody hates it. I know. not I'm, impressed.
0: I'm alone on that one, but yeah. uh, I love, <laughs> in a guilty pleasure way, because you're right, it wasn't a great film. Right. But uh, but for what it was, I think it was great.
1: All right, well, we. we
0: That's it, all we, right. We
1: detoured significantly, but. That's right.
0: We we're got also our, at the end our, of our list. Our picks, yeah. so um, yeah, we have our, our 12 for side A. We will return next week for 12 more for side B, and then we will title and sequence our choices, and we will have a duets mixtape.
1: Yeah, and, and there are at least two uh, artist match face-offs coming up next week. So, um, all right, well, nothing that we've named really has surprised me, and we hit a number of the... Not only the biggest duets of all time, but I think you know what our audience would, would expect. So, curious if there are any really obscure tunes coming up.
0: Um, I saved a couple big ones, at least one real big one next week, and um, one that's maybe somewhat obscure for some people, but it's incredible. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. Because
1: I, I see the few that I have that are more obscure are on my alternates list, but I, you know, deferring to you both on Olivia Newton John and. Stevie Nicks, I might, might pick from the obscure. We'll see, but right now let's give a shout out to our our sponsor, Jake Callahan Painting. Uh, when you have anything in Northeast Ohio that needs painted, uh, definitely find Jake Callahan Painting on social media. find Find her on Facebook. She does an incredible job. Tell her that Gen X Mixtape sent you. And I think that's it.
0: All right. Well, that's all for this week. Hot funk, cool punk. Even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week.
1: But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side.